and welcome to Series 5, Episode 13 of the Canny Conversations podcast, powered by The Pathway Group. My name's Mark Wakeley, and I'm one of the team who bring you these podcasts each week. In this series, Safraz will be talking to some of the business people he's met and worked with in his 23 years at the heart of the West Midlands business community. In this episode, Safraz is in conversation with Jenny Pelling, Director of Apprenticeship Development and Diversity at Kaplan, the educational services company. In part one of this two-part conversation, which will continue next week, the discussion covers Jenny's multifaceted role at Kaplan, a major global education organisation seeking to increase access and opportunity. This includes governance, quality assurance, supporting apprentices and collaborating with employers on effective programmes. She's seen employer attitudes shift to more strategic uses of apprenticeships over her 20 years in the field. Jenny's passion for education access and diverse qualification routes started with teaching English internationally. Her career path led to law, specialising in employment law and helping pioneer legal apprenticeship models. Their conversation explores how sectors like law have changed. They go on to talk about Jenny's accomplishments as a leader, advancing apprenticeships, diversity, inclusion and social mobility across education and professional services. Their discussion goes on to focus on the importance of holistic pastoral support for apprenticeships. So let's hear from Jenny and first of all, Safraz. Welcome to another series of Canny Conversations podcast. We're at series five and today we've got a special guest as always, like all our other guests, but today a very special guest. She's a judge of the Multicultural Apprenticeship Awards and also a big supporter of the Multicultural Apprenticeship Alliance. My plug out of the way, but more importantly, we've got Jenny Penning speaking to us about her life, her journey and the work that she's doing at Kaplan. And we're going to really get into the conversation. Jenny, firstly, welcome. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming today. Much appreciate that. Thank you for coming to Birmingham. I feel like an ambassador welcoming you to Birmingham as well and really appreciate you, all your support and all your all your guidance and encouragement that you've been doing throughout the, the last couple of years specifically. So let's talk about the Multicultural Apprenticeship Awards because that's, that, that happened a couple of weeks back. And you're a judge, you're, a, you're, you're in the hot seat judging these. What's it been like in terms of the, the awards? And you know, I think I believe you've been a judge for two years now. It's a thrilling thing to be part of, actually. Yeah. And it's humbling to do and it's an honour to do, but it's quite difficult. You know, you, you see so many worthy winners of these awards and you read their stories and they are compelling case studies, really, of yeah. the power of apprenticeships and the power of multiculturalism. Mm. And so the judging job is actually pretty tricky because, you know, there are so many people that you want to win and give mm. it to. So there's a, a fair amount of debate amongst mm. the judges about mm. who the winners of each category should be. But mm. we were unanimous on the overall Apprentice of the Year. I mean, Joseph Lennox was an outstanding individual. Absolutely. And what he's achieved so far in such a young life is, yeah. is remarkable. So it's been a real thrill to be involved. And the positivity that comes from it, the joy, the enthusiasm, the energy. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think anybody who hasn't been in the room of the awards can, can quite kind of understand what it's like. Mm. But there is, 
it almost transports people. It's such Absolutely. a powerfully positive, uplifting occasion to be part of. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Jenny. And thank you for uh, your role in judging. I know it's a tough, tough thing. And a lot of people say, you know, judging is is something that uh, it does take a lot, a lot, a lot out of you because, you know, you're personally involved and it's not an easy thing to do. And, you know, sometimes you're conflicted and you've got other people involved and, you know, it's a big responsibility on your shoulders. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing that with us. And, and thank you for sharing your experience of actually being there at the awards as well, because it's okay saying something, but you know, actually being present and seeing it and seeing the uh, the joy in people's faces and and all those change makers and influencers that are in the room. So well, absolutely, you know. and, and like you, you know, you standing up and speaking on the spe- on the stage, sharing you know why you do this and the the the, the vision behind the Pathway Group setting this up, having Chad Deep speaking, hearing Cassim and yeah. Damash, you know, all of the amazing speakers that you have yeah. sharing their stories as well makes it you know even more kind of weighty in a way, but powerful as well in its mess- message that it conveys. So, Jenny, in terms of the, you know, you've got multiple hats that, that you wear. I mean, you're a very busy individual and you've got a lot of responsibility on your shoulders on all fronts. And, and let, let's talk a little bit about the, the day job, the thing that you and I really originally sort of started working on. So, firstly, if you can, tell us about Kaplan, what Kaplan is, what does it do, a little bit about your role possibly as well, if you can share that with us, and your journey with Kaplan through the, the years that you've been there. I will do. With pleasure. Thank you. Catplan is is a large a large organisation. Education is our purpose, and we believe in providing opportunity for all. And it's a global business. There are about ten thousand employees across the world, twenty seven wow. countries. Mm. In England, um, the Catplan Financial, for whom I work, we are really focused on three sectors: accountancy mm. and tax, financial services, and data and technology. Mm. And my role within that firmament is in the apprenticeship development and diversity. So very much enjoy working in collaboration with with USAF and the Pathway Group and the Multicultural Alliance on ensuring that there is fair access to the professions, that we are promoting equality, diversity and opportunity throughout all we do um, in collaboration with you. And yeah, Catplan has a you know part to play in the sector. We're a we're a really large provider with about yeah, 11,000 apprentices, so it feels like a, a very big family. When I was doing my research, I mean, I, I found out that Kaplan started in 1938, and I thought, you know what, well, that's, a, that's a remarkable feat. In the, it originated in the United States, and it is a global entity, global brand, and uh, but at the same time, very regional in terms of his approach, very local in his approach, working within the communities, and he's got that global coverage as well as the, the, the regional community uh, initiatives coverage and one of the things that I wanted to sort of speak to you about is the the work that you do with Kaplan Pathways you're involved with that in terms of offering students from around the world opportunities so if you can just tell us a little bit about some of the work that Kaplan does on a sort of promoting education in all these different ways yeah Kaplan it's, it's kind of got breadth and depth really mm. so you know there are business schools we own Dublin business school Australian business schools there are yeah. university models that we operate where we you know provide opportunities for students from all over the globe to come and study as a kind of pathway into a university role um, it might be English language it might be financial skills so it, it is all rooted in education and providing you know routes into either higher education employment 
upskilling individuals. So that is the yeah. whole ethos behind it. And you're right, Saf, it is it's very much a family mm. business. Stanley mm. Kaplan set it up about mm. 85 years ago. Mm. And, and the purpose then was why we're here now, really. Mm. It was to provide opportunity for people to be able to study in America. And that kind of ripple effect has grown. And so it's become a kind of global mission now. Yeah. In terms of one of the initiatives that's very interesting for me to read was the Brighter Futures initiative that uh, particularly in terms of uh, leading on social mobility and drumming the drum of apprenticeships and, and really the work that they're doing there. And I think you, you know, you're taking a leading role there within this initiative. Yeah, we do. I mean, I suppose if you think about the values of Kaplan, one of them is about creating opportunity. Mm. And for me, that's, I suppose, been the, the North Star of my career really mm. is, is creating opportunity through education. And Brighter Futures is something that everybody gets behind at Kaplan. And, you know, we're really fortunate to have volunteering days. People can use up to two, you know, volunteering days a year to to give back and to promote and support causes that are mostly aligned to education, actually. But, you know, for example, in Brighter Futures, we support the work that you do, which is so important. We work with Career Ready, which is a charity mm. that provides mentoring for yeah. people who, you know, haven't really seen what it's like in professional services might not have the self-belief that they can go into that area of work and through mentoring schemes like that and others they're kind of opening people's eyes Mm. to the opportunities and potential that they they could achieve and i i'm quite driven by that Mm. and and sort of personal values as well as the overall corporate values that Kaplan has too So, uh, I mean, through Kaplan, you're involved with the Multicultural Apprenticeship Awards, the Multicultural Apprenticeship Alliance. You're the governor of Kaplan Pathways. You're leading on Brighter Futures. But you're also the chair of the EDI Steering Committee for Kaplan as well. Is that... Well, uh, almost. Not quite. Oh, no, so, no. Um, you've, you've over-promoted I'm me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm part well, you're, of the... You're part, you're part of the, the EDI Steering Committee. I work on the client EDI Steering Group, which is <laughs> indeed part of the overall, but uh, um, that sort of higher echelon is taken by... By Kathy Walton, who's our CEO. So, but what it what it shows you is it's driven from the top. Yeah. You know, there is a really strategic approach to broadening access to EDI across Kaplan, and that's you know filters through from that sort of executive strategic level mm. to the client groups to a learner focus group and steering group, and so everybody is driving this together and there's you know, quite a strong vision for it. And then recently the, uh, the World Skills competition yeah. as well, the Kaplan's been involved with as well. I think you're taking a leading role. I do, in, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I've got to work with great colleagues on this. But it, World Skills provides young people with the chance to kind of have a go. And it's really important that we're allowed to try things out and these are people who've been competing through the year actually in different stages of you know small assessments case studies that they work on business problems and um, coming up in November in, in Manchester we've got the finals of the accounting technician competition and we'll be there in our world skills red t-shirts um, supporting the finalists through and they yeah, it's another way of recognising achievement, isn't it? An effort. And they have their award ceremony at the end that um, Steph McGovern usually turns up to in a very yeah. sequined, wonderful suit to give out the the, you know, the awards. And it's 
it's a great thing that Britain does. And they then finalists can go off to Lyon to compete in 2024 and things like that. So people really enjoy it. I wish more people would take part. That was, you know, it, it does horrible. take a bit of effort and cajoling and persuasion, but it's worth it. People, you can see their confidence sort of soar through the competition as they realize that they can do these challenges, that they can present, they can do financial storytelling, whatever it is, in front of judges. And, and mm. shoulders go back, heads are held high, and it's a really wonderful thing to be involved in. Absolutely. I mean, so there's a lot, there's a few things that you're involved with from your main role as, as a Director of Apprenticeship Development and, uh, and Diversity for Kaplan. So a lot of the initiatives that Kaplan supports, you know, you take a, a leading role in, in those, and that's as well as the, the key role and the role that you, you're, you're performing. So talk a little bit about the day job itself as well in terms of, you know, you, you've had a couple of transitions in terms of roles as, as well within Kaplan. So what's your current sort of responsibility and portfolio looking like within the the, the, the role that you perform? It's an enjoyably broad portfolio. Yeah. So I, I do quite a bit of work around our governance framework and how we as a business operate. How do leaders know that the, the, the business is performing well, that learners are learning well? So quite a lot around um, the governance and leadership at Kaplan, working with our external assurance board, working with the kind of professional senior leadership team to ensure that we're giving effective challenge and scrutiny and oversight and support across the business. So, so that's one aspect of the work. And, and that can feed into many, many areas. So, you know, we're in Birmingham today and I'm with you in this great setting in Edgbaston and and after the, this conversation, Saf, I'll be going back to our Birmingham centre and we do kind of walking the floor activities, yeah. being in centre as the leadership team and really listening to what students are, are telling us, what, mm. what they enjoy, what they would like more of, and really just being there to sort of find out from a quality perspective how, how things are going. So, so very much kind of a governance role. I also am responsible for the personal development of our apprentices. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, an apprenticeship is more than a technical qualification. It's more than the knowledge. And it's this, all the skills and behaviours that surround somebody's individual development. And so we're there to ensure that they um, that the ambition can be fulfilled, that we're developing all of their skill set, their communication skills, their analytical skills, problem solving, that we're building mental confidence. A lot mm. of people have found, and we're looking at a lot of apprentices who have studied and learned through a COVID generation, and it, it, it behoves us to really support them now at this point in their careers to, to have that mind fitness, that resilience that enables them to flourish for the rest of their career. So I do quite a lot of work around individual development and thinking with employers strategically about what is it you know, that you need as an employer from your incoming, you know, new to bank, um, new, new entry uh, learners to be able to do and what skills don't they have that you want us to develop. So that then takes me kind of broader to the employer work I do. And I'm really fortunate to work some, with some really, truly great clients and employers to shape what a good apprenticeship experience is. How do we upskill staff effectively? How do we fill the gaps that they're seeing? How do we ensure that we're creating, you know, confident, competent, credible 
employees who you know thrive in a world that is fast changing we both recognize mm. that you have to upskill quickly these days and you need to be equipped with transferable skills that allow you to adapt and adjust quickly to the way the world of work shifts mm. and so the other aspect of my role i really enjoy is that kind of close employer working to together create programs that that suit businesses and suit the learner. Okay, fantastic. So, in terms of uh, in terms of some of the initiatives with with the employer, because I think you've been well, you, well, you have been working with employers for a number of years in terms of the understanding of what apprenticeship is, the benefits of apprenticeship. Has that sort of changed a little bit for the better or for worse in terms of employers' engagement with apprenticeships and the opportunities there? You know, it has actually. So, I've been working in apprenticeships and equivalent qualifications for about 20 years now and I absolutely have seen the shift really impressively in the way that for example line managers are now getting much more involved with the holistic development of an apprentice so I suppose previously you might have seen across the sector when the levy came in you know the apprenticeship levy change behavior, didn't it? You know, corporate cultures looked at this and thought, well, why have I got this pot of money that I'm not utilizing? You know, this is a significant sum as a business that I'm seeing not really kind of paying its way, I suppose. And and so they might, employers in the past, not saying our clients, but employers in general might in the past have looked at that and thought, well, I better use that. I better just make sure I'm getting, you know, getting my value for money. I, I want some apprentices because I'm paying that money. But they might not have thought through the ramifications of that, the um, commitment that they needed, the whole development that you have to put into somebody thriving in an apprenticeship. And so I suppose they might have thought, well, that was a useful way of upskilling somebody technically, but not necessarily as the whole person. And that really has shifted. So with employers having crafted the apprenticeship standards they're they're invested there got brilliant employers leading those trailblazer groups for new standards and employers i see do understand the the commitment that's needed to help an individual succeed through an apprenticeship and and what that means structurally for them as a company ensuring that that they do have good line manager support who will you sit down with you and and talk about how you're applying what you learned in class or online, how they can help you maybe through a new project or a secondment or some way that helps you apply what you've learned through the apprenticeship. And I think that understanding has really, really strengthened. And there are so many other ways, Saf, you, you know, we see employers using apprenticeships strategically for talent diversity. And that's been a significant shift. You know, you might have entry criteria previously could have been years and years ago i suppose could have been x number of a's a level the gcse's you know y type of university really different now where you've got employers thinking well actually let's not set those such stringent entry criteria let's look for people who have potential and open that up so that they then benefit as as employers of having a, a more diverse workforce um, that that helps their own business too. 
Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Jenny. We'll come back to some of the opportunities and, and the challenges within our sector and some of the conversations that you have been having with employers and, and also within your organization and within the sector as a whole. But I want to go back a little bit, if I may, in terms of you know your, your journey to the world of work. And there's a similarity there in terms of the, the starting point, at least. And that's uh, the English language. And, you know, you're a teacher and you were a teacher for uh, speakers of other languages, uh, TEFL and various other acronyms, you know. So we, we used to use uh, ESOL for speakers of other languages. And yeah. then there's uh, uh, TFL and TEFL and so forth. And you, so you started off, or you, you were not started off necessarily, but you were involved in the, in the world of teaching English. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about that entry route and those sort of experiences and the journey that you had, please. Uh, with, yeah, I will do. <laughs> uh, it, might, it might take a while. So. <laughs> They're kind of meandering yeah, route. Which is very interesting in terms of some of that background. It's no bad thing. Yeah. I mean, often at the moment with our apprentices, we, we try and convey the impression of a squiggly career, which is, it's not our invention, but it's something that two fabulous women, Helen and Topper and Sarah Ellis, created in terms of career coaching, career development, and that we, we should move away from this concept of a very, very strict ladder of opportunity and think about the roles may change careers may wander and you should say yes to opportunity and and that i suppose has been my philosophy for a long time that saying yes to opportunity and as a kid i always i was that person that had her head in a book uh, I'm, I'm sitting talking with you in this wonderful room in Edgbaston and my eyes, captivating as though this is, my eyes are drawn to the, the library bookshelves yeah. to, your, to your side, which is, yeah. has the Birmingham Book Club title next to it. And, you know, seeing the books with Michael Lewis, Lisa Jardine, Hilary Mantle, things like that. And I'm, I kind of come alive. So as a kid, I was always reading and I could see the kind of worlds that you can step into through literature. And then mm. that kind of exploration of mine became, I suppose, exploration of physical places. And I got wanderlust and I wanted to go and travel. And I thought, how can I, what passport other than my proper passport will enable <laughs> me to do that? And I, I quite like gaining qualifications and certificates. And mm. I thought, well, the TEFL mm. qualification is a passport for a career mm. because I can teach English anywhere. So uh, I, I got that qualification in, in Cambridge and then went and worked in, um, in Paris and in Italy in language schools and in a university and in an adult education sector where, you know, France was quite enlightened. They, they used to provide um, language checks for people who'd been made unemployed to help them improve their English skills. So I got mm. really involved in education, teaching English, seeing that as a a powerful way in which people could transform themselves and provide them with opportunities for employment or travel. So that was sort of the English language side. And then I, um, I did some teaching in Australia. Um, I taught a little bit of cricket, which wow. um, and, and tennis is sport and, yeah. and other, other things. Uh, and then thought I, I probably ought to you know, come back to the UK. And so I, I did my degree and I, I then decided I would train as a, as a lawyer. So I went to, after university, I went to, um, and some of this teaching, I went to law school. Just, if I may, just come on, coming on this as quickly career thing. And, and, you know, so your degree was in English language and literature. 
Uh, so your passion was the language, you know, obviously reading books and so forth. And then you've done uh, some work in the in the field of teaching English and various other things. And then you've gone into law from that angle. Can you can you sort of connect that together a little bit? Is there a is there a connection? Is, did you was there a, a lawyer in the family, or was there a what what attracted you to the the profession of law? A couple of things really. Work experience. Yeah. I, I had done some work experience ages before, and thought it was quite interesting. It was mm. an intellectual property matter, and um, I remember being quite intrigued. And there is a lawyer in the family as well, so yeah. you can hear the conversations. Yeah, but. I quite like the skill set of lawyers as well. To be a good lawyer, you've got to think quite critically. It's critical thinking, yeah. You need to be pretty analytical and you've you've got to question pretty well as well, which I, I'm being well questioned by you, so I'm appreciating the skill, but it's not a place for groupthink and you need to have independence of mind. And mm. I, suppose, I I think that's really what I, what I had. And I enjoyed the communication skills that I could see other mm. lawyers are using, you know, the speaking, the, the clarity of communication, both written and, and spoken. Mm. And it felt like something where I would do well. And often it's about an environment, isn't it? You, know, you, you look at a sector and you think, Am I, is this right for me? Am I going to be out of place here? Is this what, somewhere where I will flourish? And I thought law probably would be a place that would suit my skill set. Mm. Um, and I, I would give it a, a go, which I did, and I, yeah, I enjoyed it at the time. It was a, it was, I'm, I'm fairly ancient now. It was many years ago, so, mm. and I worked in in the city in a firm that has now been taken over by a US firm. Yeah, and I specialised in employment law, and they sent me on secondment to Brussels to work for ICI. Um, so I got I got to use my languages a little bit again then. I mean, obviously, you've been drawn to you know languages. So, you know, you know, so not just English language. Talk to us a little bit about some of you, the love of language that you have, and and some of the languages that you sort of had the opportunity to try and practice, and and what you've learned, and a little bit about that love of language. Where does that come from? And probably comes from going back to books. Actually, yeah. Get, stepping into a new world, and there's no better way, is there, than stepping into a new place and being able to communicate in the, the own language there. So, yeah. I, I hated turning up somewhere and <laughs> and not being understood and not being able to make myself understood, not really appreciating what was going on. So, in the way that I quite like collecting qualifications, there was a bit of language acquisition going on as well, and I. I love how you live a language when you live there. And it's so different mm. to when you're at school and the formality of teaching mm. sometimes. And, mm. you, and you turn up to a place and you, you do your best sort of GCSE French or um, the Italian that you've picked up or whatever. And it's rather different when you're there in, in real life. So actually sort of living there, working there, just going back to saying yes. I ended up working in a place called Perugia in Umbria and... I travelled through there and had this sort of visceral connection that that is the place I needed to go and live and work. So I kind of rocked up and, and found the language school and showed them my CV and what I'd done and, and then got a job teaching in, in uh, Perugia. So I hadn't didn't have any formal education in Italian. I just picked it up through probably too much enjoyment of pasta and Italian football <laughs> and wine. Uh, you know, you mentioned Leon earlier on in terms of world skills and so forth. I mean, you you can get an opportunity, do you think, you know, to possibly utilize that and maybe trot the world in, in you know 
I'd, lo- uh, I'd like love to. to. Love I, to yeah? I, I still have wanderlust. So yeah. There is definitely an appeal of working in different countries and understanding different cultures. And I've, I've always loved that, actually. And some interesting experiences through the years. I remember speaking, actually, at an international prosecutors conference when mm. I was a few years ago in Kiev or Kiev now mm. um, in Ukraine and, and mm. you know, being uh, talking on a stage with translators from so many different countries mm. and communicating with people about their experience of, of prosecution mm. law. So yes, being the opportunity to, to work internationally is something that drives me. And Brussels, what's life in Brussels like when you were working for ICI? What was that? Was that you know, was eight, nine months stint? Yeah, I, yeah, I did. Yeah. I learned an awful lot about polyurethane. Okay. Uh, which I hadn't That's anticipated. That's a great dinner table conversation, isn't it? <laughs> well, you say that, but yeah. did you know how yeah. much polyurethane no. there is in, in paint or a wonder bra? You know, yeah. it, it, so you understand in a, um, when you go in to work in, um, in industry, I suppose, it's a really important connection that you need to make with the business. And it's the same now in my yes. role in apprenticeships. You need to understand what the client wants. And if you're you know, working in law and you're working in house, you've got to understand what the business mm. needs and, and actually help them to be able to you know, set up a contract that works for the business and them, that it, it adheres to all regulations. But mm. really understanding the product and what they're trying to achieve is important. So I did spend some time at ICI kind of understanding the, the finer workings of what polyurethane can do than having to draft contracts. But I loved working in Brussels. It's a, quite a foodie capital, actually. Uh, and uh, I rather too much enjoyed that. But you came back to the pull of education and sort of spent most of your life, I would say, in the in the field of sort of education and 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 skills and whether it's as I said, you know, recently with Kaplan, but previously with uh, Silex pronunciation, Silex yep, right. yeah. So tell us yeah. a little bit about that because that was obviously a very pioneering type of role, pushing the agenda of skills within the the law sector. You're right. And a phrase you used just there is one that really resonates with me, the kind of the pull of the thread. And mm. uh, there's a lovely um, line in Brideshead Revisited about the, the twitch of the thread, the pull of the thread, and you can't get too far away. And it, it almost becomes a calling or a vocation. And certainly that was the experience for me that I'd worked in, in law for a bit and you know, related areas. And then I, then I had children and the law then was a, was a very different world really in terms of um, potential for working mothers and Mm. and it didn't quite work I I couldn't foresee myself at that point bringing up a family and working you know all of the hours that we used to and those two things landing well together so I I moved through it and I was actually reading the Times law section whilst I was on maternity leave and there was an advert for Silex Law School which um, happened to be near where I lived mm. and they were looking for somebody part-time who had mm. a legal background, mm. uh, who was interested in working with clients and mm. in education. And it felt like the job advert was written for me. And I applied and was fortunate to, to get that role. And and it went from three days to four to four and a half to five and um, became a director there. And its purpose chimes with me in that it is about broadening access to the legal profession. And it was during my time there, they, you know, Skills for Justice and the government bodies were looking at how, you know, we were an alternative route into law and I worked there. People might necessarily think about solicitors and barristers, but they mm. didn't necessarily think about chartered legal executives. So, mm. so at the time it was 
providing that breadth of opportunity. And so I worked on a brilliant project with some different organisations to develop the first legal apprenticeships and to work in partnership with some university and um, some networks, consortium of of law firms, to develop the first solicitor apprenticeships. Mm. Um, There was a brilliant man called Barry Matthews who um, worked at ITV, and he and I and a colleague from City University, in a short space of time and quite hard graph, but absolutely worth it, Mm. created this, this solicitor apprenticeship scheme with many others, but that was the first one. ITV had the first solicitor apprenticeship and a woman called Holly Moore, who's a trailblazer herself. So I, I worked with law firms um, to work out kind of paralegal routes, charter legal exec, and then solicitor apprenticeships. So the, the job advert was written for you. You went in part-time and then you you were there for 15 years. Obviously, there's a there's a lot of change within that period of time that's happened within the professional law and and the sector that you're in. So, and, and you mentioned earlier on the fact that the, the profession was quite difficult for a for somebody looking to raise children. Do you think that's still the case? Do you think there's been some changes and so forth? Is it is a obviously very difficult cutthroat profession? A lot of responsibility on people's shoulders. It has changed. Yeah, I I think it's probably pretty unrecognisable now from when I was in practice. And I I remember being in practice and wearing a trouser suit being quite radical. (laughs) Okay, really? Yeah. And if you didn't have heels on, that was pretty much frowned upon. It It was a very, very different time. It's not like 50, 60 years ago, obviously. No, but, <laughs> you know, but the law, the law yeah. is, is, is conservative yeah. by yeah, nature. Yeah. And you know, in, in, this, in the city back then, you were representing mm. certain clients. And mm. you know, that, that was the professional expectation, I yeah. suppose. And we, I remember um, being, having to go into court at short notice as a very junior. I didn't work in law for, for that long, but as a junior lawyer, um, I had to go in to do what they call chambers hearing and, and go into court. And it was when Dress Down Friday had just been introduced as a concept. So, yeah. so there was some flexibility coming and you, you, you could be slightly less formal on Fridays. And, and this sort of emergency application came through uh, for in, uh, an employment matter. And <laughs> yeah. I went along to, to chambers and queued up what they call the Bear Garden, which is intimidating enough as a name, <laughs> yeah. um, to go in and, and make this application to the, to the master. And it was summer and I was wearing a sort of short-sleeved um, top and um, trousers. And I was really... Ha- nervous because you you were taught in your advocacy lessons and everything that you you know navy blue gray black those are the formal wear and there i was not looking exactly that formal uh and turned up you know thinking oh goodness gracious i'm gonna have you're gonna get thrown out of this one but um persisted and made my case in front of the uh the master and and he was very avuncular and sort of peered down his glasses at me and said um miss isaac's it appears that one of us in the room is overdressed. Uh, okay. It was, was very kind of kind to me, but yeah. um, I survived and we, we got what we wanted. But um, it, it just shows you how much yeah. the world of work has changed. You know, yeah. Quite commonly, you will be in meetings in trainers yeah. um, and it's what's comfortable, what's right, what's appropriate for the meeting, for the situation. It's not that there is a formality now. 
as such that you have to adhere to. And, and the same was the, the, the kind of situation for women. Part-time work, you know, it just feels natural now, doesn't it? Mm, and but that true. then it was not as much so. I had a really good time at the law firm I work for. I'm a big believer in, in that organization and it you know, had a female senior partner recently and it, it's a great company. But back then it didn't suit my circumstances at that very time. But had it been now, I think I might have stayed in law for a lot longer. I, I had a manager once, Jenny, that used to sort of, what I thought, paid compliments, but later on I realised they were all put down at times. I had a manager, a team leader, and the manager said to me once, I just remember this, uh, you know, you've got a, a tie that only a mother would buy a son. And I thought, <laughs> I thought that was a compliment initially. I then <laughs> said, he obviously doesn't like your tie. <laughs> So that just got, that just reminded me of that. But Jenny, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to try and go back a little bit if I can, or go forward a little bit in terms of some of the, the work you're doing, particularly in terms of supporting apprentices, because that's, I think, a key key role, um, uh, not just in terms of what you're doing, but I think that's a key role that businesses need to realise and, and, and providers need to realise in terms of that pastoral support. Thank you to Jenny Pelling from Kaplan for her time and knowledge and for choosing to share it with us. Next week, you'll be able to hear the second part of Safraz's conversation with Jenny Pelling. If you don't want to miss that, then remember to subscribe or follow us. If you are new to the podcast, let me tell you there are already 70 other Canny Conversations podcasts out there. And you can listen to all those past episodes by searching for Canny Conversations on your preferred podcast platform or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. We would also love it if you could review, subscribe or follow the podcast and please tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you'd like to know more, then go to cannyconversationspodcast.co.uk or go to Safraz's website, that's safraz.co.uk. Safraz has also written a series of easy to follow business books, Canny Bites, and these are available from cannybites.co.uk forward slash by the book. As I said, we'll be back next week to bring you the second part of Safraz's conversation with Jenny Pelling from Kaplan. So until then, we hope you have a good week. This is a 1386 audio production.